1 Corinthians 13, starting at verse 1. If I speak in tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast. It is not proud. It, is, it does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall not know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is God's word. Let's pray as we look at God's word together. Heavenly Father, we read these words, we've been reading these words for a few weeks, and we see how it exposes our lack of love or our self-seeking love. Father, we want to love more like you love us in the love that you have shown us in Christ. So as we um, look at these words this evening, please challenge our hearts, please show us more of Christ that we might delight not in evil but with the truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a reason, isn't there, why um, lots of people love having 1 Corinthians 13 at their wedding, um, whether they're a a Christian or not. Um, It sounds nice, doesn't it? Um, You know, who, who can disagree with love is patient, love is kind? Yeah, we, we can all get behind that wherever we're coming from. But I guess as, as we've been seeing over the past couple of weeks, um, as, we, as we've looked at this passage, it is incredibly challenging. These words are incredibly challenging to our sort of shallow understanding of love. Of all the, the challenging statements in 1 Corinthians 13, and there are lots of them, um, I do wonder if, if the one we're looking at this evening just might be the most challenging, and I'm not just saying that because it's the one that I've been thinking about most. Um, verses 6 and 7, verse 6, is the one we'll spend most of our time thinking about. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. 
Why is that most challenging? Well, just think about what our culture says about what it means to love somebody else. Love in our culture today is, is, has basically been reduced to acceptance and affirmation. I must accept someone however they are, and I must affirm that as, as good and right. Love only um, ever means affirmation in our culture. You, you can never challenge someone. That's not, that's not loving. And when we live in, a, in an atmosphere like that, when that is all around us in our culture, it's no surprise that that feeds into our relationships at church, how we love one another. What, what does that look like um, in, in practice? Let's um, think, think of a bit of a, a further away example, then maybe bring it a little bit closer. Imagine a, a teenager comes home um, one day, um, and they announce to their parents that they're taking a gap yeah. okay? Um, they've, they've, had enough, they've been working so hard. I mean, you would not believe how hard they've been working. And they've decided that next year, instead of um, doing whatever they were going to do, they've, they're going to go and live in um, a hippie colony um, sort of smoking weed and d- doing all the things associated with that in, you know, Southeast Asia. Um, they're going to do that all year. Everyone at school, everyone I've spoken to thinks it's a great idea. They're totally for it. They, they, they've backed me up. They said, yeah, go, go for it. You do what you want. What is the loving thing for the parents to do? Is the parent allowed to say, that's a dumb idea? Is it unloving to not accept or affirm someone's choice? That's maybe a bit, a bit distant for most of us. Let's bring it a little bit closer. Your, your friend tells you about um, a new relationship that they're in, um, a relationship that they freely admit has already gone too far um, physically. What do you say? What do you feel is the loving thing to say? The world will tell you to say, well, you've, you've got to do whatever feels right. Whatever feels right to you. But is that loving? Or maybe, um, closer still, maybe, maybe you've noticed um, a friend in your DG group um, is often, you know, they, is often abrasive with others after they've had a drink at the pub. What is the loving thing to do? Should you just sort of laugh it off or speak to them? Culturally, I guess, that, that whole issue of, of acceptance and affirmation, it, it's most charged in issues of, um, around sexuality and, and gender, where anything other than, than 100% um, affirmation, you do whatever um, you need to do to be you, is seen as, as unacceptable as harmful, as unloving. That, that's, that's the most sort of charged topic, but it, it, it flows out in lots of other ways too, not just in those sort of heated debates, but in the everyday habits and character traits and life decisions. What does it mean to love one another? Our culture um, might well agree with the first part of the statement, the first part of the verse, love does not delight in evil. And of course, love should not delight in evil, but 
Who gets to define what is right and wrong? Who gets to define what is evil? They might agree with it only, only if um, evil is anything that makes it harder for me to be me. Our culture would certainly never agree with love rejoices with the truth. They might agree with love rejoices with your truth, but not the truth. 1 Corinthians 13, 6 says, love does not delight in evil because delighting in evil is not loving. No, instead, love rejoices with the truth, the truth, God's truth. And that will be hard in today's world. It, 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 it sort of makes us feel uneasy, doesn't it? It makes us feel, oh, I just, I don't really like that. It will probably mean, um, at different points, being accused of being unloving. But as we've seen, real love, 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love, is prepared to endure hardship because the truth is loving. Love cannot just go along with wrongdoing. Love graciously points people to the love of Jesus and what he tells us is the truth. Jesus loved us enough to tell us the truth and he lovingly gave himself for us that we might live in the truth. So as we take another um, look at 1 Corinthians 13, it is going to expose our shallow view of love and show us the most excellent way, the way of real, distinctive Christian love. And remember that the church in Corinth is exceptionally gifted. If you looked at it, it would be very, very impressive. But they're lacking in the one thing that really matters. They're lacking in love. And so three things, um, three things we're going to see uh, in these two short verses about love this evening. Firstly, love does not delight in evil. Secondly, love rejoices with the truth. And thirdly, love keeps going. Firstly then, love does not delight in evil. What does Paul mean when he says, what, what, what does it mean to delight in evil? What does that actually look like? Well, in the context of 1 Corinthians, Paul probably has in mind um, a, a particular issue that he's spoken about in 1 Corinthians 5. So back in 1 Corinthians 5, he said this, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. That's what he said back in, in chapter 5. So clearly in, in the Corinthian church, there is a, an obvious example of unrepentant sexual sin. Someone is sleeping with their stepmother, presumably behind their father's back. And the words that Paul used to describe that response, the, the, the response of the church to that unrepentant sin, are, are straight out of the 21st century. Tolerance. The church, they have an, an anything-goes attitude Paul says they're even outdoing the pagans in tolerance. That is, no one is calling out that sin for what it is, sin. They're tolerating it. Secondly, they're, they're accepting, they're, they're affirming it. He says in verse 2, and you are proud of it. This is going on and you're proud. 
your pride that they're such an affirming community that even this doesn't require any action, any pushback. You know, they're sort of saying, oh, oh no, we, we don't want to say that's wrong. I mean, it's kind of exciting. It gives us something to talk about over coffee. We're not going to call it out. See, delighting in evil can look very much like tolerance and acceptance. Now, don't mishear me. Those are, those are wonderful gospel qualities, but they do have to be gospel tolerance, gospel acceptance. See, the gospel says we can accept anyone, no matter what they have done, no matter how sinful they are, you are welcome. That is the gospel. But, but love means calling each and every person to repent, to repent of their sin, whatever that might be, and showing them what it means to live for Jesus, showing them the, the, the life that Jesus has called them to live. That is open to anyone. That is gospel tolerance. Delighting in evil can look much like tolerance and acceptance, things that our culture loves. Why would anyone delight in evil? It seems obvious, doesn't it? What, it why does he even need to say love does not delight in evil? Why would anyone be tempted to delight in evil? A few reasons. Firstly, there's, there's the issue of our own sin. Wrongdoers love the wrong that we do. So a gossip loves telling a secret. Um, a thief um, loves taking something that doesn't belong to them. A sexual sinner enjoys the pleasure, the fleeting pleasure of sin. So there's just something we like doing wrong sometimes. But Paul, I, I think here, is, is thinking less about our own sin and, and more in others' sin. Why would we delight in the sin of others? Because it gives us license to commit the same sin or similar sin. So just think of Corinth. When the Christians in Corinth knew that that guy over there is sleeping with his stepmother and everyone's okay with it, well, then maybe my slightly less scandalous sexual sin is not such a big deal. The, the prevailing view of our culture, it has an impact on how we see sin. We can become desensitized to it. And on, on a scale of, you know, on the scale of, of sexual immorality, I, I f can feel like I'm pretty low down. And so maybe my sin doesn't matter. And so that, that is why it is important to understand that what we expose ourselves to can desensitize us to sin. It's one argument for being careful about what we watch culturally. Without trying to sound like your dad, um, uh, you know, our, our dating programs, our, you know, uh, the sort of Love Island-esque programs, are they actually helpful? Or are they delighting in the immorality of others? Now look, come and, you know, Come and tell me I'm wrong. Come and tell me there are good reasons um, to engage in that, that sort of material. But it can have the impact of, of just desensitizing us to the impact of sin. 
there's a second aspect of, of, of exposing the, the, the sin of others, seeing the sin of others and delighting in it. I think there is a sense of, there can be a sense of satisfaction when others fall, when others fail. That's maybe particularly prevalent in the church. So when, you know, when some leading figure um, falls into sin, or more personally, someone that we've had a, a disagreement with stumbles in some way, it, maybe it's just me, but, but it's hard, isn't it, not to feel a little bit smug, a little bit self-righteous over other people's failures. I remember um, back in the day, back in my um, home church a long, long time ago, there was a, there was a family who, um, who I, I saw as the sort of perfect um, Christian family. You know, they, they were involved in everything. They were um, you know, they were sort of the, the, the ones held up as, you know, a, a great family, great marriage, great parenting, great. And then one, one day it turned out that um, the wife had run off with another man and the family had disintegrated. I was only a teenager at the time, but I remember thinking, it was, it's really ugly as I look back on it now. I remember thinking, huh, huh, not so great after all. Just that, that, that really ugly smugness. Certainly a, a, a temptation for, for the competitive Corinthians. You know, they're always trying to outdo one another. Just easier to do that when, oh, that, that person, they weren't, weren't so great after all. Sort of gloating over other people's failure. Another way that, another reason why we, we might just delight in evil is that Lots of other people seem to think that it's a great thing to do. As if, if a person makes a choice to do something and it's not obviously harming anyone else, well, who are you to say that it's wrong? Are you, are, are you the unloving one for not just going along with it? But love, 1 Corinthians kind of love, is moral that is, I, I'm not loving if I go along with evil. If I stand back and, and watch someone go down a road that is leading them away from God, and I do nothing about it, or I, I, I cheer them on the way, that is not loving. This verse exposes us, doesn't it? Where are you and I in danger of tolerating or affirming sin. Maybe sin in your own life, but maybe most particularly sin in others. Where are you in danger of delighting in evil? Because, Paul says, love cannot do that. Love cannot delight in evil. But instead, if that was the negative, here's the, here's the positive. Love rejoices with the truth. Love rejoices with the truth. The word that, that Paul uses here, it, it's a stronger word, an even stronger word than, than the delighting in evil, the word he used for delighting there. It is rejoicing, real rejoicing with in the truth. It is a, a rejoicing that comes when you pursue what is right and true. I don't know, if, as you read that, how, how would you have completed that sentence? Love does not delight in evil, 
but rejoices with, I guess, the obvious sort of opposite is goodness, righteousness. But Paul says, no, the opposite of evil here is the truth. What does he mean? What is the truth that he's talking about? I think it's a a pretty broad um, definition, but, but he's thinking about the truth of the gospel, the truth of Christ crucified and risen, God's grace to lost sinners. I think he's also thinking wider than that. He's thinking about the truth of who God is, God's character, all that he has done. He's talking as well about, about the truth of God's word, the right way to live in God's world under the lordship of Christ. Truth is the opposite of evil here because it expresses itself, it is lived out in holiness. It isn't just something you know, it is something you live. So, of course, it it is hard to confront the sins of others. And it is right to ask ourselves the question, am I being unloving here? But love is not amoral. Love longs to see people grow and flourish in godliness. Love, genuine love, longs that other people would become more like Jesus. Love rejoices when truth wins out. So what would it look like to to affirm and rejoice with the truth in someone's life? I think this is hard. It's It's easy to point out what it's not. What does it actually look like? to rejoice with the truth. Well, I wonder if it, if it means affirming what is true and rejoicing when someone lives that out in their life. So do you, I actively affirm when someone makes a sacrifice to live for Jesus? Do I rejoice with them? Do I say, that is, that is great, keep going? Do I affirm it when they deny themselves something that the world says is theirs by right and they do it for the sake of obeying what God has said? Do I affirm them when when they take the difficult step to, to end an unwise relationship? When they trust what God has said and they trust that that is better for them than what the world would tell them? Do I help other people to believe that? Because those are the sort of things that are worth affirming, aren't they? That is what it means to love, to rejoice with the truth. But of course, to do that, to, to genuinely affirm those things, well, we need to believe that living God's way is good for us, that it is beautiful, that it is worth living that way. Not just when it, when it agrees with what our culture would say, but maybe particularly when it disagrees, when it opposes what our culture would say. It's the the things we've seen in 1 Corinthians 13, isn't it? It's self-sacrifice, not self-righteousness. It's forgiving and not keeping a record of wrongs. It's being patient instead of demanding my rights. That is hard particularly when it puts us at odds with the culture around us. 
which is why I think we need verse 7. We spent most of our time in verse 6, but we'll um, go through this very, very quickly. Um, Love keeps going. Love keeps going. Four things Paul points to that love does. Four things that I think are all about endurance, all about keeping going in love. Love for God, but love for one another. And in the face of the things that the world wants me to delight in, the Christian is to rejoice in what God loves. And we're to keep doing that, even when it's hard. So the four things. Verse 7, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. They're sort of in in two pairs, um, the first and the last one, and the middle two. So firstly, it it always protects, or um, better still, maybe, it's a a slightly funny word, but better still, maybe, endures, that is, withstands the pressure from outside, the pressures of the world to cave in. Love endures, it protects. Encourages us not to stop loving in this sort of way when the world says we should. To not stop loving God when the world says that's harmful, a waste of time. To not stop loving other people when everyone says it would be better if they were left to make their own choices. It is not caving in to the pressure. And we need, we need to know that now. I don't know how much you've been following um, things in the Church of England and the prayers of, of love and faith. But as the Church of England goes down a route calling on churches to bless something that God says is wrong, they've, they've given in to the pressure from the culture. They haven't done 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7. They haven't protected, endured. And the, the last one always perseveres. It's linked to that. Love never gives up. Even when it's hard, it keeps going. We need to know that that is a, a good thing because loving like Jesus is never a mistake. Loving like Jesus will last into eternity. When all the other flashy things, that, that the gifts that we so often love to, to think about, and they'll be gone. But loving like Jesus will continue eternally. Love always perseveres. It keeps going. And then the middle two, always trust, always hopes. Always trust is not about naively believing the best about everything and everyone. But it is about trying to be generous rather than cynical. A love that always has faith in God primarily. In all circumstances, in all situations. Trusting that God knows what he's talking about when he said what is for our good. Trusting that he will give me what I need to keep going, even when that's hard. Always hopes. That is not not just hoping for the best. Again, a sort of naive, hopefully things will work out, but a certain hope. A certain hope that Jesus has got us, that we're his that as we've entrusted our lives to him, he will keep us to the end. Always hoping in the, in the sense that there are no hopeless people. We are not without hope. Hope that one day we will be free from sin, that we won't delight in evil. And hope for others, that as we speak to them lovingly, graciously, 
of the gospel-shaped love that Christ has shown us. Hope that they might be drawn to Christ too. Okay, let's get practical as we finish. How, how does this actually work out in practice? Because I guess our experience is often that truth and love do not go together. So either someone is into truth and they're a bit harsh, or they're into love. Love is their thing. And they're just a bit, I don't know, a bit woolly, a bit fluffy. That's why it's important that we remember that 1 Corinthians 13 is is primarily and firstly about God's love. It is about the love that Christ has shown us. Because Jesus is, is the perfect example of how love and truth come together wonderfully. Jesus, who, who never delighted in evil, and he was the only perfect, holy person who had ever lived. But that, that never made him brutal or self-righteous or prudish. You know, that love drove him out to be with sinners, to spend time with them. It drew sinners to himself because they knew that they would be loved, but that they'd also be told the truth. He showed us what a better way to live looks like, and he calls us into it. So for those of us who who lean towards um, truth as our sort of big thing and are in danger of being brutal with it, well, we need to look to Jesus and see how he loved people with the truth. He was never harsh. And for those of us who who think that love means I I always have to affirm and accept, well, that's not what Jesus did either. He would confront people. He would challenge people. But he would always love people. And his love caused him to endure. His culture told him that he was wrong. That he didn't really love God or other people, but he persevered, kept going. He endured the injustice of unfair accusations and a sham trial and a criminal's death, and he did it out of love. And he loved us in order to make us holy. His is the, is the perfect love that longs that other people would grow. That is much, much better. That is a much richer, deeper love than a sort of bland affirmation. He does more than just accept and affirm where we are. He starts there, but he doesn't leave us there. Jesus knows our sin. He lovingly confronts our sin. In love, he dies to deal with our sin, to win our forgiveness. And in love, he pours out his spirit to transform us. That is so much better than anything that the world offers. And if he endured that for us, if he can endure the scorn of others, even as he seeks to love them, we can too. If he can trust his father in the face of immense suffering, then you and I can trust him to see us through when we stand for the truth lovingly. If he loves us like that, then we must respond with love, love for him 
and love for one another. We must love one another enough to speak about our sin, to call people to godliness. Love cannot delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Loving one another like that, it, it will be harder. It'll be much easier just to skirt over things. It will be harder, but it will be better for us. It will make us more like Christ in the way that we love and in the way that others love us. We will become more like him. So will you love one another like that? Not delighting in evil, but rejoicing with the truth. Let's pray that God will give us the strength to do that. Father, these words do bring us up short in the way that we seek to love one another. Father, in the way that we seek to love um, the, the world outside us, around us. Father, would we not be tempted to delight in evil? Father, when that is easier, because it is what our culture says is good, it's what everyone else is, is doing and affirming, Father, help us to love people better than that, to genuinely, truly love people enough and to speak truth to them. Father, to do that graciously, to do that in a way that, that commends Christ to them, that is Christ-like. But help us to do it, we pray, for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.